We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Rabbit, 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 America. On this March 1, I'm Hugh Hewitt. It's Friday, and we're lucky Ben Dominich is in the house. He is, of course, editor-at-large for The Spectator, Fox News contributor, and like me, I think, an admirer of Mitch McConnell. I, Ben, welcome. Good morning. I was lucky enough to be on Special Report Wednesday night, so I was able to inform everyone Mitch McConnell is the best legislative leader the Republicans have had in either house in my lifetime, and I'm significantly older than you are. He's a genius. People on our team sometimes don't recognize it, but they're going to miss Mitch McConnell. What do you say? Well, I certainly think they will, Hugh. I mean, the the, the point that I think uh, is is a very you know unquestionable one is that within the last twenty five years, the mark that Mitch made on the Republican Party and the Republican uh, approach in Washington is uh, immeasurable compared to others. Uh, and you know, certainly there have been one example after another where he has uh, made a choice that was questioned at the time. Uh, maybe for ideological reasons, maybe for strategic reasons, uh, but that ultimately came to fruition in much the way that he expected. And that's not something that you can say about a lot of people who are in the business of politics. And I think that in his case, uh, you know, he he made some bad choices at various points, uh, I think, in, in failing to recognize some of the opportunities that could be seized as it related to the rise of populism within the Republican coalition. But really, other than that, I think that you really would have to see, look hard to, to find uh, any kind of uh, weaknesses in the approach that he used, which was uh, just time and again uh, found to be well-founded. And, and as much uh, uh, you know, just slag that he got uh, both from right and left, uh, is you can, you can kind of come to appreciate the kind of, of arrows and slings that he had to withstand uh, in order to endure as long as he did. Now he's choosing to go out on his own terms. And I think, you know, you compare this to, you know, great quarterbacks and that kind of thing, you know, choosing to go out on your own terms at your own timing is not something that a lot of people get to do. Uh, and, uh, and when he's, when he's done it, I think you can look back and, and look at his legacy being one that is not just, you know, of course, confined to the bounds of the Senate, uh, but is right across the street at the Supreme Court and is throughout the, the court system. Well, that, that's the high point. There are a lot of high points in uh, the McConnell career, but holding open the, the vacancy created by Justice Scalia's untimely death, the next day coming out and saying no hearings, no votes. That yeah. made it not particular to Merrick Garland. It boxed in Barack Obama. It made it the issue of 2016. It got Trump elected. Former President Mitch clash a lot, but there's just no denying over over this long career he's well, extraordinary. And I, and I want and I want people to understand how much you know people are going to forget how much the strength of will it took to do that at the time, just given the pressure that he withstood. You know, not even from you know just people on the other side of the aisle, but people within his own party who thought that you know uh, putting Merrick Garland on the court 
would have been a better option, especially considering, you know, all the people who assumed that Donald Trump would lose. We forget completely how much crap he was getting from from those yep. people who were saying this is this is a complete mistake. And now that we've learned everything that we've known since then about Merrick Garland, it would have been a huge mistake to put him on the court. And a 6-3 originalist majority. I've worked for it my whole life. Now, second topic, this court, this McConnell court, this Trump court has accepted the immunity case. They're not going to rule for complete immunity, Ben, but I I did not want the D.C. Circuit opinion to be the guiding law of the land. This is about all presidents going forward, and we need a full-blown opinion from originalists on what is intended here. What do you yeah, think? Absolutely. absolutely, and I think that you know this is not a situation that uh, you know, could have gone uh, you know, further along without having the court weigh in on this question, because it is a question where we need clarity. Uh, and, you know, this is you know, I'm sure that you probably are geeking out on this, uh, Hugh, uh, you know, on, on some degree, because this is an opportunity. Uh, I know among my uh, uh, legal friends, my, my the many constitutional attorneys that I know, which is something that you end up <laughs> getting close to if you if you live in the D.C. swamp area, you uh, you get to know all these people who basically are rolling out all this knowledge that they haven't had reason to use or deploy. And Nixon v. Fitzgerald doesn't come up very much in conversation. So once <laughs> exactly. it- <laughs> so, uh, so it's, it's led to some, some interesting conversations and debates, and I think that this is going to be a, you know, a really key moment for the court. But to see the, the media reaction. Oh, the meltdown. To this, oh, my gosh. Absolute meltdown. And that just, to me, it, it gives away the store. It's, it's, it completely you know, says to, to everyone who's paying any kind of attention – this is all about partisanship. It's all about the individual of Trump. It's not about the principle of the thing at all. Uh, and you just are now concerned because you can look at the polls. You can look at the situation in, in swing states across the country. Uh, and you are starting to get very, very worried about the, the ability of Joe Biden to actually stand on his own two feet uh, and, uh, and beat Donald Trump come, come November. Uh, you needed this safety valve. Uh, you needed this this ability to stop the former president, uh, and now that now they've really you know I think admitted that essentially publicly. Uh, now that they've gone and freaked out about this about this schedule, uh, and I don't you know I don't think they're going to be very happy with the outcome of this. And it was a risk that they took on from the get go. Uh, well, J- Jack Smith went to the now. court and said, "You must hear this." Now they're hearing it, and people are mad like Jack Smith. Ben, I want to make sure I get to one subject. I did. I've never heard of Shane Gillis. Right? I stopped watching Saturday Night Live. When I had babies back in like the eighties, <laughs> right? So I haven't watched that in life since the eighties. Parents go to bed, but you. But my son said, "Oh, read Ben's piece that you wrote in the Spectator about Shane Gillis. You spotted this a long time ago. He's huge now. How did you know yeah. he was going to be huge?" Well, you know, I will say this: Shane Shane has become a friend since I profiled him seven oh. years ago, and and. Uh, uh, we're close, and I was at his uh, schedule. I was at his taping of a Netflix special. Uh, you can actually see me cheering at one point in the crowd. Um, but and uh, uh, and I've gotten to know him a, a good bit since then. Look, he, here's the thing that people get wrong about Shane. Shane isn't even like a, a you know a rock rib you know sort of uh, MAGA hat wearing. Oh, absolutely uh, not. No, he just comes he just comes from a very culturally different place in America, you know, being a guy who, you know, wanted to go to, wanted to go to West Point, you know, a football player, a guy who, you know, is, you know, he thinks of things through the lens of his, the views of his, his Fox News watching dad, uh, you know, and things like that. And uh, stop right things. there. 
That's the bit my son sent me. Fox News yeah. dad and Fox yeah. News mom. You want the former, you don't want the latter. She's smoking cigarettes. Yeah. She smokes the cigarettes with that. But here's the thing about Shane. He he just appreciates a different part of the country than all these people who went to Harvard and you know uh, you know end up in the the uh, you know comedy world and what he he got canceled in a way that was uh, you know, not not only did he just do I believe that his return to SNL um, uh, and and hosting the, uh, the show that he did, not only does that mark the end of a certain type of cancel culture within the comedy world, I think that he shows that, you know, it's it's not just that it's that the, the cancellation made him so much bigger uh, than he ever would have been without it. They made a huge mistake, the leftists who tried to do that. Uh, and and frankly, you know, it's been great for comedy, and, and he is a river to his people. There's a lot of people who have come up around him who he's helped promote, comedians who are, who are you know, in the, in the Austin scene and, in, uh, and frankly, you know, uh, coming more and more up in, in the New York and, and East Coast area who he has helped promote. Uh, and it's, it's been just a, an astonishing thing. I was at uh, McGooby's Joke House in Timonium, Maryland, in fact, just this past week, uh, before the the day before uh, Shane did his show to profile another comedian who he has highlighted, who is uh, who he helped uh, produce the special of Sam Talent, who is a left of center guy, but he's also the same thing. Comes from a different world. He comes, you know, he's a, a completely different uh, character in terms of uh, his approach to comedy uh, than this than this you know uh, hoity-toity leftist scene that we've. Uh, yeah, Ben, I got to tell you, to I have a rule on this show that I've broken three times. I broke it with Tim Conway with um, Jeff Foxworthy, and I'll think of her, uh, Tracy Ullman, and, and never interview a comedian. It's like shaking hands with a hurricane. Never do it. Yeah. They don't care what you ask. They, don't, they, you know, they have no idea what a break is. They just do riffs, right? Yeah. And he's awfully funny. But I started to watch a Shane Gillis special with three former Trump senior administration officials, and, it, you know, we were all over 50, so, I mean, the humor is just a little rough for us older guys, right? <laughs> you know, it, it is, but I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. What you're going to like um, is right after that happened, when I, right after the SNL uh, appearance happened, uh, Netflix announced that they're picking up a pilot that he did several years ago called Tires about guys in a tire shop. Um, and, and you will like it when Netflix eventually, uh, you know, puts it out there. When you talk to him, would you please tell him to do a, a monologue for old guys who cannot handle the idea? His Baghdadi <laughs> bit, how, how they got Baghdadi. Best Trump impersonation I've heard in a long time. But I, you can't play it for anyone ever. But it's my goodness, it was funny. You know, you say you can't play it for anybody. And then I literally have an entire text thread that's just me sharing that with my buddy. Oh, you know, you see, that's because that's because you're a young dad, not over 50. But you can't. I I can't listen to that without laughing and saying, I shouldn't. i got to go to confession now. All right. Uh, ben Dominich at the Spectator Fox News. B. Dominich. Hope I see you on the Fox set soon. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Joined as I am most Fridays by Sarah C. Bedford. She is the chief investigative reporter for the Washington Examiner. Also covers Congress. Good morning, Sarah. Happy March 1st to you. Happy March 1st. Thanks for having me. Sir, we averted a shutdown, but that doesn't really tell us where we're going. I am curious, is the supplemental going to be resurrected? I've, I've urged that they attach the wall to it, but what's going to happen to the supplemental with aid for Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine, and American defense business? Well, right now, I mean, they're barely keeping the lights on in the government, right? The first of the two deadlines that were set up by these CR votes is March 8th. So we're talking about a week from now 
for lawmakers to figure out these spending bills. And then the, the second um, and larger of those spending packages will be due on March 22nd. But I think, you know, there's there's a lot of, of consternation about what that supplemental will look like at this point, because you do still have Republicans whose reservations about it were not necessarily limited to the border provisions in the original version. There's real uh, reservations about the idea of continuing aid to Ukraine itself in any form among Republicans. That's going to make it difficult, I think, for this to move forward, even though I think but there's enough bipartisan support that it will eventually find its way to Joe Biden's desk. You know, Sarah, I talked to a lot of conservatives and, uh, and a lot of members of the Senate, and I'm told that the Lankford bill came back and they just missed the target, didn't have the wall in it. So if the House puts the wall in it, They'll gain votes, but they also have to cut out non-military aid to Ukraine. And if they do that, add the wall and cut out non-military aid to Ukraine, only weapons. What do you think what would happen? I think that would make a huge difference. A big reason that you see um, some Republicans objecting to the idea of providing this much aid to Ukraine is because a lot of it, um, and by some estimates, what we sent them so far, up to 40 percent of the aid that has been appropriated for Ukraine is, you know, what they would call soft aid. Paying the paying for government services to continue in Ukraine. It goes beyond humanitarian aid. It's types of aid that can be particularly susceptible to waste, fraud and abuse in a deeply corrupt country. I do think that would make a pretty big difference, at least on the on the margins, if not a decisive difference in how Republicans view Ukraine aid. If it was just limited to weapons, it's harder to make the case against that because the Pentagon does tend to track that pretty efficiently. It's hard to disappear a tank, for example. Yeah. Uh, now, Sarah, i got to ask you about Dr. John Thunin. That's how I refer to uh, Dr. John Barrasso, John Thune, and John Cornyn, the three leading Republicans who want to replace Leader McConnell, Dr. John Thunin. Who do you think is going to win that race? I stay out of it. They're all my friends. I think that is exactly how most Republican senators are approaching it right now. It's early days. Nobody wants to kind of stake a position necessarily. I do think there is a little bit of skepticism of John Cornyn that he's not uh, enough of a, a sort of new breed of Republican Senate majority leader. What I hear a lot uh, from Republicans on Capitol Hill is that they're looking for someone who's more of a fighter, who's going to be more confrontational, where compromise is not necessarily the highest ideal of the next Republican Senate leader. So someone with sharper elbows, the ability to be that fighter. And I do think, honestly, whether Donald Trump wins in November is going to play a big role in this as well, because if Donald Trump is the next president and is potentially working with the Senate majority, uh, he's going to want to play a very big role in selecting that that leader. Now, you know, Sarah, I've, I've talked to so many to those three so many times. None of them are sledgehammer people. They're all uh, rules experts. And to me, to run the Senate, you got to know the rules of those three. Who do you think knows the rules the best? Oh, gosh, who knows the rules the best? <laughs> That's a great question. I think John Cornyn has shown himself to be uh, an institutionalist at times to the consternation of, of other Republicans. But I hear a lot of excitement about John Thune. I mean, I know that at this point it's just like betting on a horse race. It's not really clear who's going to emerge victorious. But I do, if I had to give weight to the idle gossip about who people think would win, I would say that there's a lot of optimism about John Thune at the moment. 
All right, I got to ask you the next Senate building that gets built, and they always build new buildings. Shouldn't it be called the McConnell Building? He set the record for serving as a leader, and I don't think it's a record that's ever going to get matched. Do you? Uh, not in this political environment. It's hard to see someone having that kind of endurance. And I also think he's a rare figure, and potentially the last one we'll see for a while, who does have the respect across the aisle. I mean, you saw Democrats, including Joe Biden, release statements uh, wishing him well and commending him on his long career. So I think he'll be one of the last politicians to garner enough support to get his name on the building for a while. Yeah, seven presidents he has served, and he has the respect of almost everyone who works in the building because he understands the building. He is. I, that's a great term. He's an institutionalist. He understands what the Senate was supposed to be, and he made it that. Sarah C. Bedford on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Follow her to find out what's going on inside of Congress. Come back. Dr. Larry Arn and the Hillsdale Dialogue is ahead. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. If you want to listen to all of my prior dialogues with Dr. Arn and his colleagues at Hillsdale, you head over to Hugh. For Hillsdale.com, H U G H F O R Hillsdale.com. Binge listen. If you want it easy, first to last, head over to iTunes and put in Hillsdale Dialogue, and then they'll just line up sequentially from when we started 10 years ago. But you should also get in Primus and get an application. Hillsdale.edu coming back with Dr. Arn. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, except for the top at HughHewitt.com and contribute to the Alliance Defending Freedom. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Once a month, Philip Balboni, the founder and executive editor of The Daily Chatter, joins me. And we could talk today about Senegal. We could talk about France. I really like the piece on Northern Ireland because, of course, the Hewitts are from Ulster. But we got to talk about Iran, Phil, because you covered Iran this morning in a way that I don't think anyone else knows. Big elections today. Take it from there and tell people what's going on in Iran today. Um, so there's an election for the parliament um, in Iran and also for something called the As- Assembly of Experts, which uh, chooses the next Ayatollah. So Ayatollah Khamenei has been in power for 35 years. He's 84 years old. He probably won't be around much longer. So this group of people is pretty important. Um, but uh, the people of Iran are not happy with their government. Uh, so... 52% of the population of Iran, according to a Gallup poll, uh, disapproves of its government um, over the handling of the economy, which is in terrible shape, and foreign affairs. Um, 43% of 15 to 29-year-olds expressed a desire to leave the country permanently. Wow. Um, the last election was four years ago, um, and... Only 40% of the people voted. And in Tehran, the capital city, the largest city, only 26% of the people voted. So um, all the candidates, or some 15,000, have to be approved by something, another one of these groups of, uh, of clerics, uh, because uh, Iran is a theocratic state. Uh, they have to approve all the candidates. And all the opposition candidates, of course, are uh, not allowed uh, to run. So you know, Phil, if I allowed, pause here for a moment, I run around and I run into people yeah. who are worried about Christian nationalism and they can't define it in the United States. They call 
some Republicans, theocrats, if they want to see a theocracy, you go to Iran. Everything has to make the muster with the Supreme Leader, who's an Ayatollah. And this this Ayatollah has been around forever. You said he's been dying forever, too. He's 84. Who Do they elect the Supreme Council, or is that another one of these elections by selection? No, they do. They, they This group of assembly of experts actually will choose the next Ayatollah. And there's already a kind of a jockeying for power behind the scenes as to who um, will be that next person. Um, and um, it will be somebody who I'm sure looks exactly like the current Ayatollah. Uh, very conservative, uh, very anti-U.S. You know, of course, you know, your listeners and viewers know that, um, you know, Iran is supporting terrorist groups and militias in no less than five countries. So Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, the regime in Syria, um, the militias in Iraq, and the Houthis in uh, Yemen, who are, of course, disrupting shipping traffic in the Red Sea. Uh, you know, Phil, I, I made an argument at the National Religious Broadcasters this past week that Putin runs a cult. The Chinese Communist Party is a secular religion, and Iran is the real deal, the real theocracy. Is there any other theocracy remotely as dangerous as Iran? And I'm putting China in a different category because it's an ideological uh, regime, but it's not a theocracy. I think Iran is the most dangerous theocracy in the world. Absolutely. I mean, you you know, you have countries like Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, a Sunni. Uh, Iran is Shia Muslim, so there are two main branches of Islam. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, is a kingdom. Um, It's very fundamentalist, but of a different brand of Islam. But no, you're right. There is no country that uh, as important as Iran that is ruled basically by the religious people in the country. Now, when when the Supreme Council uh, disallows someone running, do, do any liberals, ever, you know, we often hear about the, quote, moderate Iranians. There aren't any moderate Iranians. They get knocked off the ballot. But does anyone ever sneak through and become uh, a force for freedom and moderation in Iran? Yeah. In fact, the last president, Mr. Rouhani, was was fairly reasonable and he was the one who negotiated the you know, the Iranian deal uh, with um, the prior administration. Um, So there are, and the young people in Iran really want to be um, free to choose their own leaders, to live a better life. Uh, um, I mean, I think Iran's a great country. I mean, the Persian Empire, you know, we know from history. I mean, it's a great culture. Um, It's a beautiful country. Uh, it's a real shame. Uh, yeah, I would have been to, to uh, Tehran years and years ago if it had remained under the Shah, where the white revolution was changing everything when he was toppled in 1978. But I don't know that it's ever going to dig out of this hole, Phil. Uh, they're, they're, they're betting everything on nuking. They're, they're fundamentalists who have an eschatology, which is very dangerous to the world. And I don't think that really the world understands that if they don't follow things like the Daily Chatter. Do you think people have a grip on what Shia end times theology is? No, 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 for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm um, slightly hopeful that, I mean, that there's strong support for change inside Iran. And I'm 
slightly hopeful that uh, eventually um, there will be a, a major change. I mean, you know, there have been some big uprisings in Iran. They've all been crushed. Um, but God willing, one day that will change. Now, they do actually, as you point more- out, they control the Houthis. They used to control Hamas. I don't know that they do anymore because there's not much left of Hamas. And they control Hezbollah. And right now the Israelis are saying to Hezbollah, move back or we're going to go to war. What do you see happening there, Phil Balboni? And what does the Daily Chatter predict in Lebanon? I predict in in Lebanon that the cap will stay on. I mean, um, the U.S. is working hard to not let this terrible war in Gaza spread fully to uh, Lebanon. I think um, uh, Mr. Nasrullah, the, the head of Hezbollah, uh, has shown some restraint as well. And now the Iranians are, are telling their proxies, you know, tamp it down. They don't want a full-out war with the United States either. either. So I think um, I'd be hopeful on that one, Hugh. Um, but I, if we have a, a little time to talk about Gaza, we really should. Um, okay, go ahead. We do. we got a couple more minutes. Yeah, I mean, what's happening in Gaza is a tragedy of really epic proportions. I mean, I don't know if your listeners realize, I mean, 30,000 killed. Well, that's according to the Hamas killed. people, uh, of whom 13,000 are probably terrorists. But go ahead. It is, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which most people think is pretty accurate. And yes, you're right. Um, probably ten to 14,000. Israel says they've killed 14,000 Hamas out of that 30,000. Uh, but 80% of the population uh, has been displaced. Um, I mean, when you think about 30,000 killed and you think about that's 1.3% of the population of Gaza. I mean, you think about that in terms of the United States, if it were us. That's more than 4 million people. I mean, it's a lot of people. And, you know, famine is spreading. I mean, the hospitals have all been devastated. Uh, I, I'm not saying uh, it's clear that Israel has done this, but I'm, of course, it's not as simple as that. But, no, I, mean, I think they've got to go into Rafa and finish the job, or we'll be doing this after you and I are gone. We'll do this again when Hamas, re- if, if Hamas is left there, it's cancer. It'll just come back. So I hope they go into Rafa soon. But tell me something about Egypt's approach to this, Phil. I've never understood. Uh, Gaza was Egyptian territory until the 1967 war. Why don't they want it back? Because they don't want the problems. The Egyptians um, are smart. They, the Palestinians, wherever they have been displaced to, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, and other places around the world. After 1948, uh, the Palestinians were pretty much, not all of them, but most of them were driven out of uh, what is now Israel. And they went to various places. The Egyptians do not want the Palestinians to be coming across what is now the border at the Sinai. um, And they want them to stay in Gaza. I mean, you know, one solution to the problem would be if the people of Gaza could cross the border at Rafah and go into Egypt and and have uh, shelter. Israel. That, that's say, the obvious thing. And they're ahead. building a big camp there. They are building a big camp. Phil, before we run out of time, I always want to remind everyone, and I just did online, the daily chatter is absolutely free to teachers and students in high school and college. And you're doing a great service with this. Yeah. 
How is it growing? 11,211 students and teachers, 1,000 schools, 70 countries. I mean, it's really amazing. We have a good-sized university of people who are reading about the world every morning, learning more. It's entirely free. There are no strings attached. We just, we love doing this. We love working with young people. And I've never uh, asked you, I wanted to ask you about this. I have a, a large homeschooling audience. Can a homeschooling mom or dad get access to Daily Chatter for their kids? They can. They should write to me, and I'm happy to hear from them. And I have heard from some of your people who are homeschooled. The links, when you go to www.dailychatter.com, there's links there for teachers and faculty and high schools. That doesn't work if for homeschool, but we can fix it and we can provide an accommodation. Happy to have them. And I, I close by saying to everyone who's teaching American history or social studies or government, you've got to have your kids read every day. They'll learn more about Northern Ireland and the amnesty. I didn't know about that, Phil, until this morning. And every single day, whether it's Senegal, whether it's Iran, whether it's France, whether it's Northern Ireland, Phil Balboni and the Daily Chatter do a great public service. Thank you, Phil. Be well. Uh, I always like my monthly meeting with Philip Balboni. Don't forget as well, Alliance Defending Freedom, they defend those homeschooling parents. They do. If you're a homeschooling parent, your best friend is Alliance Defending Freedom. There is a uh, homeschooling legal network, which Mike Ferris, who was the second president of Alliance Defending Freedom, first one, Alan Sears, then Mike Ferris. Now it's Kristen Wagoner. And all three of them have been brilliant lawyers, superb, superb lawyers. Alliance Defending Freedom defends the right of parents to educate their children as they see fit. They defend religious liberty. They defend life. They defend the Establishment Clause. They defend the right of atheists to be atheists. They are the best legal defense firm in America, but they need support of people like you. Whether it's $100, which goes a long way, or 25 or 10 please head to the banner at hughhewitt.com and click on it and make a contribution to keeping Alliance Defending Freedom battling on your behalf to save your freedom. Welcome back, America. That music means Sonny Bunch, official movie critic of The Hugh Hewitt Show and co-host of two podcasts, Across the Movie Aisle, and the bulwark goes to the movie. Sonny joins us. Sonny, I read Dune when I was young. I reread it in middle age. I listened to it a third time after the age of 60, and I still can't remember anything except plans within plans within plans. Is it good? Fear, fear is the mind killer. That's, that's the, it. Uh, that's the other thing. Yeah. Uh, so Dune, Dune Part 2 picks up right where Dune Part 1 left off. Uh, uh, Paul Atreides is wandering into the desert with his new Fremen allies uh he has uh he he his family has been destroyed on on the desert planet of dune the harkonnens the evil wicked you know white grotesque harkonnens have taken over again uh and the the emperor has accomplished his goal of you know getting rid of the atreides family but Um, paul's gone native Paul and Paul goes native. Paul, you know, this you could call this movie uh, Lawrence of Arrakis uh, <laughs> Dune too, because it is very much it is very much about a, a uh, you know, kind of um, uh, well, I, I don't want to I don't want to cast aspersions on Sir, Sir Lawrence, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a skinny white guy in the desert leading a, a band of desert fundamentalists to 
uh, to, uh, I don't know, victory over the, the hated oppressors uh, that, have, that have taken over their planet. Well, let me explain to people the one thing you need in this universe is spice. There's only spice. one planet with spice, and it's got these big worms on it that you really don't yeah. want to shake hands with. <laughs> You know, it's so funny because this the the whole movie. All right, so uh, let's let's just uh, again finish out the plot here. So Paul heads to the desert. Uh, as you mentioned, the desert is where spice is made. Spice is uh, a a drug that allows people to see slightly into the future, uh, and the the space guild needs it to travel. All of this is silly nonsense. All of this is silly mystical nonsense. And it's, it, it is almost completely dispensed with by uh, director and co-writer Denny Villeneuve, who just doesn't, does, it does not deal with like the mystical um, elements of this very much at all, except in the sense that it is needed to create the myth of Paul Madib Atreides. That's what he is known as to the, the Fremen people, Madib. Uh, and uh, 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 really, this is a movie about this is a movie about guerrilla warfare and um, and uh, and worms and worms and and worms and riding giant worms. Uh, it's it, it look it, on on that very basic level. Again, if you look at this as like Hall of Arrakis with giant space worms, where uh, there's there's big action set pieces set across these giant desert. Uh, sandscapes with setting sun silhouetting uh, the action and I, it looks great the movie looks great it's a big epic great looking movie um, the the villains in this picture are once again the the Harkonnens Austin Butler who we last saw uh, playing playing Elvis uh, is uh, Fade Fade Rautha um, who is a uh, he is the nephew, I believe, the nephew of uh, Baron Harkonnen, who is played by uh, Stellan Skarsgård in both the first one and this one. Uh, and he is a, he's a real vicious little guy. Uh, he's, uh, he's fighting, you know, slaves in the, the gladiator pits of uh, Getty Prime, which is where he comes from. Um, and he is, uh, he's, he's, a bad, he's a bad dude. It's funny, I've seen people talk about him like he, is, he gives the greatest villainous performance of the last you know 15 years people are comparing him to anton sugar from uh, no country for old men or or heath ledger's joker from the dark knight and i think that's a that's a bad comparison because he's a nothing character really i mean how about he, the like, the double sorted guy in star wars darth maul yeah uh, darth maul he, he, that's what he, i thought of when i saw him is oh it's a it's a bleached out darth maul He's he's closer to Darth Maul in the sense that he is kind of cool looking, but ultimately um, not not really an enormous threat uh, to 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 Paul Atreides. And and you know that's that's kind of the problem with this movie is that the whole thing is is essentially the whole story is essentially couched as a prophecy, the fulfilling of a prophecy, the the, the rise of Paul Atreides who is going to spread. Uh, holy war throughout the throughout the the universe. It's very funny, Hugh. You know, I I recently reread Dune as well to to prepare for this, uh, and the the book is constant constantly uses the word jihad. I mean, yep. it, this is a movie. Frank Herbert wrote a movie about how awesome cocaine and Muslim fundamentalist armies are, and and in this in this book or in this movie, you know, they 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 kind of downplay the spice. 
And also, uh, every mention of jihad is now holy war. It's just, you know. Yeah, the and the interesting thing to me is that Dune was the first epic to go Dune 1, Dune 2, then Dune 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Someone's still writing a Dune. And like Star Wars, the universe exploded. And then the entire fantasy genre, which Tolkien had perfected, all went downhill. Dune was not as good, but it was good. And it's written for teenage boys. I mean, that's all it is. It's just it's right. fantasy escapist uh, fantasy. Right. I mean, this is, you know, I have I have friends who get very, very upset when I say this, Hugh, but you're 100 percent right about Dune. This is this is a it's there's there's a there's a character trope in in uh, books and movies of this sort. The the Mary Sue, right? And the Mary Sue is a character who is excellent at everything he does and he's beloved by the people and. You know, he he kind of stands as an uh, as an author and audience surrogate. You know, it's it's how you see yourself or want to see yourself. And here's in, in Paul Atreides in these books. You know, he is a uh, he's he is he's described in the book as small for his his age. He's a small boy for his age, but he's precocious. He's brilliant. He's an amazing fighter. He's a great lover. He's an expert politician. You know, he leads these. His mother is a witch, though. There's a little Monty Python opening, but she's a witch. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, and you get you, you get you get more more of the witch stuff in in this uh, in this movie. Rebecca Ferguson is great as Paul's mother, who uh, becomes the the reverend mother of the the Fremen people. She she. It's just a, such a goofy collection, but you know it is made. It is. It's made for young men to you know escape with. This is the thing. It is. It's a goofy movie in, and it's a goofy story, really. In the main, it is. We're, we're talking about something that is, like, frankly, kind of, uh, kind of silly. And this is again, once again, and when I, when I, when I say this to big Dune heads, they get very mad. They're like, "No, no, it's a serious book about politics. No, and it's, it's about, not. it's about, you know, the, the, it's about trying to, to." And I'm just like, guys, guys, guys. Guys. Am I am I correct? They've got Christopher Walken in it, though. Christopher Walken plays the Emperor uh, Saddam Padish. The good fourth, choice, uh, Padish the fourth. Uh, I like him a lot in most things. It's funny he's barely even acting in this movie. It really no, he's playing him. himself, isn't he? He's basically just saying saying the words on the sky. There's not. I guess you don't. I guess you don't really expect uh, you know Christopher Walken to come in and. Uh, do do you know Deer the whole uh, method no. thing? He's but, basically he, coming in saying more cowbell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not. More, that's not more far violence. Off. More violence. That's not, that's not but, far off. Look, in, in Hugh, look. I'm, I'm being. I'm. I, I'm. I'm probably being more down on this than than I actually am because I, again, I I enjoy this movie. I I, uh, I like it a lot. It's it's a big epic action movie it's it's a, it's a little too long it's two hours and 45 minutes something like that before credits um but it's uh you know i feel like there's there's an amazing 200 minute movie to be made out of these two movies put together at, at five hours it's a bit much uh between part one and part two uh but i i and i will say look i have always been a, a timothy chalamet doubter hater i am not i do not care for him i i like I don't like his look. I don't like his tone. I, I don't really like his acting for the most part. But in this movie, he uh, there, yeah, at one point he is called upon to deliver a Braveheart style speech, a rousing, you know, you I am your leader. You must follow me style speech. And it's the first time I was ever like, oh, I get it. 
You know, I, 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 I don't. I, I can't started. imagine him giving a Braveheart speech. That would be yeah. like, where's Braveheart? Where, <laughs> where's yeah. Mel Gibson? He's like yeah, look, five foot four and two one hundred and ten pounds, isn't he? Exactly. I'm look again. I'm with you on that. I I have, uh, but the both in both of these movies, I've been impressed with him. I've 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 come away with a. Uh, a greater appreciation for for Chalamet, that, and you know, part of that's the material, part of that's the uh, the direction by Denis Villeneuve, who who is who's great. I love uh, most of what he has made. You know, he made Sicario and uh, Arrival and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I like all those uh, quite a bit. Um, so he's he's one of my one of my favorite um, current working directors, uh, and and he, he gets good performances out of folks. Well, it's out today, Sonny. Thank you for the review. We had to satisfy the Dune heads. It's Sandy. You'll feel gritty when you come out of this movie. But Dune, uh, make sure uh, you go to Sonny's um, two podcasts, Across the Movie Aisle, and the bulwark goes to the movie, because I'm sure he talked about the technical side of this. CGI making sand has got to be a little bit of a challenge, but well done, Sunny Bunch. Thank you. This is the Market Report, which is brought to you by our friends at American Federal, AmFed.com. AmericanFederal.com, actually. AmFed Coin and Bullion sells you gold, silver, platinum. If you're like the one, 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 one hundred percent of people that collects coins, you can deal with them, too. They're very, very sophisticated. Ask for Nick or any of his team. Nick Grovich is my pal. If you want to buy gold, buy gold directly from Nick. AmericanFederal.com or call 800-221-7694. Joined now by the Poet Laureate of the Hugh Hewitt Show, Tarzana Joe. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, you. You notice that some stories just uh, never go away. Uh, they linger on X or in the ether, especially those that don't pass the smell test or the taste test or sometimes the look test. And this is one of those stories. I have an eye for trends, and one that's sweeping through the nation is an unexpected renaissance in self-examination. While the world may be in chaos and the ship of state is lurching, the leadership is focused on their souls, through which they're searching. You've seen it in the headlines, this trend that I've been praising, and it goes beyond the limits of just routine navel-gazing. In a story the enlisted would find trying to believe, the sec def, that's Lloyd Austin, turned up absent without leave. His staff announced at once it was the truth they'd be pursuing and concluded things went wrong, but with an absence of wrongdoing. They followed all the clues and didn't care which way they went, asserting that you're innocent when lacking ill intent. Complete exoneration can be guaranteed and seen to if you stay with deep conviction that you really didn't mean to. Their scrutiny was scrupulous, their motivations pure, of course, these same folks told us that the border was secure. So when you face the music, just be sure that you're in charge. And that goes twice for documents you keep in your garage. That's Innocent Until Proven Innocent by Tarzana Joe. You know, Joe, I, I think we need a new title. That's the Ballad of Dwayne. Right there, that's <laughs> oh, the Ballad really? of Dwayne. He's always innocent of everything that goes wrong on the on the Hugh Hewitt show. You saw him turn his back on you right there. The yeah, Ballad of yes, Dwayne. I, I, can I can I get you to rename it? I will happily rename it, or at least as a uh, a subtitle. Yes. All right, subtitle, also known as AKA the Ballad of Dwayne. That will be posted at TarzanaJoe.com. I'm sure it may already be up. And how is the poetry business as we go out of Valentine's Day and head towards summer weddings? Uh, there was a, a a big lull in in uh, 
in the February, but boy, March is full. And there are some weddings coming up. I'm very pleased to say that romance is still alive in the uh, lower 48, at least. If you need, and maybe there's a poem needed in Alaska or in Hawaii. If you need a poem, Tarzana Joe is your man. Send them an email, Joe at Reagan.com. His rates are reasonable. They are not inflationary. He is indispensable if you want your verse to make your guest smile. Tarzana Joe at Reagan.com. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Hugh. Rabbit, 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 and morning glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt on March the 1st, 2024. It is Friday, and the weekend is here, except for Dwayne. Dwayne, I've got a, uh, if you leave now, you'll be back pretty quickly. I've got a mission for you. Uh, okay. Yeah, I need you to go up and pick up a package at the Donner Pass. <laughs> no, thanks. No, it's part of myphdweightloss.com. It's sure to work. No, uh, myphdweightloss.com does not specialize in human protein. No, I'm talking, it's not that. You don't have to have, there's no cannibalism going. It's just, oh, just, there will be after the blizzard hits. I'm just saying, if you leave now, you no, can be back in a week no, or thank two you. weeks. No, thank you. I'm not packing my snowshoes. I am Eight. not going to get stuck under 15 feet of snow. 864-644-1900. That's our, that's our best sponsor, and I said I saw it was happening in this area. That's our best morning. sponsor, and you're linking them to cannibalism. That's no, just I'm grand. sending you. I'm sending you, because you'll come back You'll come back really skinny. I, I will come back really skinny, because I'm not eating people. 